0: Hello, and welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Kraus, licensed professional counselor. In today's episode, I'm gonna be interviewing Sheila Van Zyl. She is the author of an incredible book for anybody, but especially aimed at women. Sheila Van Zyl joined the first generation of career women in the 1970s, emerging from their homes, gifted with the ability to juggle real careers and family. She served as a high-level executive, business owner, community volunteer, and gracious hostess, but the truth beneath her seemingly successful and satisfying life was a different story. Dissatisfied and unfulfilled at 60 years old, and having neglected her own needs for decades, Sheila suffered toxic relationships and embarked on a journey that she hopes will spark a deliberate and fruitful search for your style of awakening also. You dreamed of being a musician, teacher, doctor, artist, or archaeologist. You wanted marriage, family, and fast cars. Somewhere along the way, you abandoned your true self to fit in. Only later did you realize that there was a cost. Now you long to rediscover and embrace who you want to be. It's not too late to unleash your freedom and be who you are. And that is a little bit about her book, and I believe you are going to love this interview. Welcoming to the Intentional Clinician podcast is Sheila Van Zyl. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Paul. It's great to be here. Excellent. So, as you know, Sheila is the author of My Waterfall of Awakening How Loss Can Bring You Home to the Life You Want. And it's also a guided journal. Correct. Excellent. So uh, I'm excited to talk to you about the book and some of the reasons you wrote the book, as well as your own personal journey. So uh, could you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to write this book?
1: Yeah, my, uh, my journey of awakening is really what this book is about, is this idea of The single event that happened that in fact spurred the opportunity for me to um, to be able to begin that process didn't even know I needed to at that point, Um, but mine started with the death of my mother. She was um, a very withholding love withholding disapproving judgmental person with me, and I was her caretaker toward the end of her life. And she spent the last six weeks of her life in my living room and uh, and died when I was holding her hand and and left us. And At that point in time when that happened, I realized that I was experiencing more relief than I was grief, because the hold that she had had on me for all of all of my life, because uh, I was approaching sixty years of age, uh, had really been released, and I didn't really understand. What impact that was going to have at the time, but as I as I the exhaustion moved away and all of those kinds of things after uh, after that process, I uh, I really understood I'd been given a lot of time back, and in giving that time back, um, I I was going to use those hours for something that was more for me and not just you know go out for another cocktail with somebody or do you know do something do something that was deliberate about what did I really want to be doing with my time. And a few months after that, I went to Oregon for a retreat. And I spent 10 to 12 days out in Oregon on the coast just looking at the water and really thinking about how I wanted my life to look like. And probably one of the first things that came to me was that I, I really needed to reshape the friendships and the relationships in my life because they had been shaped in, the, in a person that I really... I was doing a lot of what I should be doing, not what I wanted to be doing. And so I went through an exercise when I was out there, and it's actually in the book, it's one of the lessons in the book, of categorizing my friends and my family members as nurtures my soul, is neutral to my soul, and sucks the life out of me. And then I began to, and I started to assign how much time was I spending with each of these people and what, and how was that really influencing how I was feeling? And, um, and in fact, I, I came up with a core group of about 10 people that I knew I wanted to keep in my life. And the rest I knew I had to reshape in some fashion, either to move them into a nurturing my soul or, to you know, to move them out of that, and so as a result of that, I came back with with kind of a framework of where to start with how I might want to make you know make changes in my life, and then subsequent to that, as that, things started to open up and as people started to move away. Uh, and some of those were kind of messy. Um, I didn't do. I didn't make it an event. It's been a long-term process, and and this number of years later, I still am going through that process. It's it's always fascinating to me that it's uh, that there's always more work uh, with anything that you do like this. Um, but I came back, and I also realized that there needed to be a spiritual component to my journey that I that I had really been neglecting self-care. And what was really, really popping up was the amount of self-loathing that I had, I had carried, and the, as I started to do the spiritual work, um, I'm laughing. This is a very long question. To how did you get around to writing a book? <laughs> Answer People, to that. So. <laughs> I love stories, so keep going. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, and so I, I began to uh, to do the spiritual exploration, and and that began to inform me about. Oh, I don't know. Things like you know, I, I had an astrologer, and I had you know, I had other people in my life, and those people started talking to me about you know, as you're as you're expanding and as you're looking at at how you're trying to deal with you know this what turns out was probably sixteen generations of self-loathing that had been gifted to me, and how do you how do you you know how do you learn to love yourself in those kind of environments uh, and release that? Um, I I began to. Uh, I began to get feedback that people said, geez, Sheila, there's a book. I'm like, there's not a book. And so this astrologer that I was engaging with, he was kind of projecting out what was going to be happening in the next few years. And and he says, oh, he says, and there's a book. I'm like, there's not a book. So not six months after that, as I continued on, um, I was introduced to an inspired writing coach. And we met for a half an hour, and she said, Sheila... I got to tell you, the book's already written. You just need to bring it in, and that was in August. And I started to write in earnest, and, and by December, the, the, the draft was done. So it really there was a book. Wow! And as I as I began writing it, I realized that telling my story was going to be a powerful opportunity for other women to be able to talk openly and honestly about their relationships with their mothers, the impacts that they'd had and how loss whether it's the loss of a job or the loss of a relationship or the loss of a parent or uh, uh, that 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 can be a transformational moment that you can use in a really positive way.
0: Very good. So it took you you had this awakening and sort of reflection after your mother's death. And that moved into all of sorts of ideas and people said, I think you need to write a book. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you did. Yes. And then this is the book. Yes. That's that's here now. Yes. Um, so that being said, I feel like that's a bit of a theme. Uh, there's a few themes I'm thinking of, but the first theme I'm thinking of is um, uh, the relationship between uh, mothers and their daughters. And I think that you said one of the things I picked up on was... Talking honestly about that, uh, can you tell a little bit more about wh- what you kind of found in your own process and what you want to bring forward for others?
1: Well, I think that the biggest thing I took away from it is trauma is trauma. Because my mother would would have never hit me. She would have never done anything violent with me. But every single thing that I did was scrutinized and perfection was required And if I could do something, I had to do it. And then I think she was terribly afraid that I was a pretty gifted person. And she needed to keep me humble because that would be it was dangerous to be a woman and and to be gifted and and to be ambitious. And so so I think and, and I've I felt badly a lot in her presence because i was constantly judged when i was 10 years old i was put on a diet and my brother could get the two ho-hos for after uh after lunch and and i would, could have a half of one right and so so there were things like that where we were treated very differently uh, the funny story about that is after the book was written um and i was talking to my brother about about some things he talked about going to play golf with mom once a week and i said You played golf with mom? You did things with mom? (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, it even opens up some of your own familial relationships. But, you know, other women identify especially in women in their 60s right now that that we were the first generation of women that were able to be out and be in professional careers and 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 yet you know we had the expectation that we were going to still be wives and mothers and we were going to do both at the same time and we were given no support system and we had mothers that didn't understand anything about that and they were very confused and and very disapproving
0: oh my goodness yes so that is a it's such an interesting cultural evolution point that you lived through, because yeah, like like you said, women in the workforce, you know, coming in in the I don't know what, I'm not exactly sure on my history, but sixties and seventies mm-hmm. more, yes. was yes. more common, and um, yet there was, you know, certain people probably, you know, saying, let's do this, you know, let's go forward. But then you're right, all the mothers, they had been raised in a completely different culture, almost. Correct. And there had been such a massive change. So it sounds like you identified not not only your mother, and I've heard other women tell me this, I was gifted, but my mother said, don't, don't outshine your, you know, husband, or don't outshine men, because you'll just get in trouble, like little, like, cultural caveats. And I wonder... How much of that they actually believed or how much was that, you know, or, or was it handed to them from some sort of belief system? I'm just, I, I have no idea, but that's just what I've heard.
1: Yeah, that's a great wonder. And I, I think that it's a combination of things. I think they mm-hmm. were scared for us mm-hmm. um, and they didn't know how to be supportive. And so, you know, when you don't know how to be supportive, you be, you're be you critical.
0: Right. And a lot of fear, too, mm-hmm. as I'm hearing, instilling mm-hmm. fear and perfectionism. Yes. Uh, yeah. And perfectionism is, of course, very uh, problematic because uh, I've. There's a book called "Addicted to Perfection," I think it's called by um, Marion Woodman, who and and she talks about all uh, a bunch of things about uh, pr- how perfection is uh, comes out in you know sort of fairy tales and stories, but then also how it, how it affected her psychology clients. Her cl- she was a psychologist, and so how it affected them from everything from anorexia. To overeating, to depression, to anxiety, to trauma, and et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, And the root of it in her book was, well, in what her case study was, was perfectionism. Yeah. So do you want to talk a little bit about yeah, that
1: yeah i it, it i think in my case it it was that i began to feel like i was two people the public person and the private person you know the public person that that was always doing the right thing that was always achieving as well and and that and then this this other person that i thought couldn't be shown that and eventually began to disappear that was vulnerable and that you know had had uh, would able to be accept a mistake uh, as uh, over time,
0: yes, okay, so almost like a divided mm-hmm. divided so yeah.
1: it took a long time for me to understand that i am I am one soul, mm. I am not two souls, and that there isn 't a public and a private me. It was only me that thought that, and uh, and reconciling the two of those, you know, I, I actually one of the lessons in the book, and it was really that reconciliation. That made made a big difference for me as I decided to wed myself. I decided to buy myself a ring, write myself vows, and wed myself. And when I did that and I committed myself to loving myself as a life my own life partner, um, it completely changed the, that public and private persona.
0: Well that's awesome. I think you know actually bringing a ritual, or a ceremony into your own life to say, okay, before I might have been self-loathing, because that's a huge thing I saw that you brought up, and now I'm going to – I'm committing to myself. I'm committing to love myself.
1: Yeah. And it's a forever journey. Yeah. Because just when you think that you've done all the work, something pops up again, and you're like, oh, wait, where did that come from? You know, I thought – and you do wonder sometimes if, if you begin to do a little more work for the collective than you do for yourself – uh, there's still there's still more onion to peel. There's always more onion to peel.
0: Yes. And and now uh, with the book is a way to impact others and and sort of spread this message, especially for anybody, really. But especially people could probably really resonate if they've been in your generation.
1: It's it's remarkable. Yeah. I mean, it, it, a day doesn't go by that someone doesn't come to me and say, I feel like you're telling my story. I feel like, you know, I, I, I thought I was alone. That's the hardest part, I think, for so many women is that they think they're alone because we don't talk about this. And this gives an opportunity. And I pretty much tell my whole story. There isn't much in there that uh, that, that is the left out from, uh, from my life. And the, there's 38 lessons in the book. And the lessons are really not geared that everyone would want to do all of them. But it's set up to be a, a journal. So if someone does want to take the time to do that, because I started journaling, and that's sort of what started, uh, moved me into the, the book mode. And there's 38 lessons, and I got a kick out of my, uh, my writing coach because she said, uh, she says, well, you know, this is like a rebirth. And so why do we have 40 lessons? Because, you know, it's, it's 40 weeks for, you know, gestation, and, and, um, and I laughed. So I wrote two more lessons. <laughs> and they were crap. Right. <laughs> so, so I called her and I said, hey, I said, what I think is going to happen is we're going to deliver two weeks early. <laughs>
0: so There you go. <laughs> I like that metaphor. That's great. Yeah. Um, I'm curious about the, I guess, well, attachment. You know, you talked about trauma. And so... And I and I as therapists we're all nerds for attachment styles. So I was just curious if, if are you okay commenting a little bit about maybe how that impacted your relationship with your mother and then the subsequent happenings?
1: Um attachment in the context of
0: just you know, the relationship, right?
1: So she was very distant with me. So mm-hmm. um so I was really I was treated as someone that she had to care for. So so I was taught all the things that I needed to be taught in order to be a woman, um, which was like ironing T-shirts and uh, learning how to do a good square, you know, on the sheets and and very, very deliberate kind of teachings that were, with that. But not hugs, not kisses, not reassurance, not so she I very much was her duty. And I was very aware that I was her duty. Um, And then my father, uh, who adored me, was an alcoholic. So I came to this conclusion that I could only be loved by flawed men. And so that attachment was not very healthy either in all of that. He was never abusive. He was, you know, made the bell every day to work, did, you know, all of that. But he drank like it was his job every night. And, you know, and we knew that. And, And so... So I think both my mother and my father really were kind of wounded souls that found each other, and uh, and I got that wonderful wound uh, delivered to me.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, our And, you know, this is was not a lecture on attachment styles, so forgive me, but most of the research is now showing that attachment styles continue to form our whole life. But those first five years, those first 18 years are very pivotal as to how we start forming our adult friendships and romantic relationships um, and especially in the first five years is the world safe is it not safe that's a, that's a big one but oftentimes we're not really aware of what's going on we just sort of see the consequences in our behaviors but you are aware when you're 10 11 12 13 14 and your mother her you said you said what it is to be a woman and and, and it's interesting to me because I caught I think my brain immediately said I think what your mother thought it was to be a woman that's correct which is yeah. To sort of know how to do all these household things and not shine too brightly and I don't know. But that's sort of the things I've ascertained so far. Yes. And so that's sending you a message that you're that you are not as valuable as someone else. That's possibly correct. a man. That's or correct. like your brother. Is that what I'm hearing?
1: That's absolutely correct. And she idolized my brother. And uh, it's taken my brother and I a while to kind of reconcile to to get to a fabulous relationship now but we look back and can kind of see how that how that restruggled for so many years as a result of that
0: oh my goodness yeah and mm-hmm. and our parents are you know if you if you have parents or caretakers as a child they are they are the world really we see the world through their eyes right. until a certain age and everyone has a different age where they they sort of start rejecting their parents view of the of the world and I've heard everything from some people who were who had extreme physical trauma at five or six telling me that that was the year that they rejected their parents worldview and started having to be a grown-up and I've heard people told me who especially people that haven't had physical abuse but just more emotional uh like neglect they don't even know they I've, I've heard people 50, 60 saying, I never, like, I've never let go of my, my parents' view of me mm-hmm. until I, like, I maybe got my own worldview at some point, but I, my view of myself was still shaped through them because they're so powerful in our minds. And I think that's the hard part about learning to reflect, especially if you're, if you're in a relationship with your parents where you see them frequently and how do you how do you separate their point of view from your own
1: I, I agree with that and in my case it was compounded by the fact that I was really ridiculed in school and bullied in school uh, we moved to a small town in Ohio when I was 10 years old and You know, all those little small town values and cliques and relationships had already been formed when I got there. And this precocious person that I am today was the precocious person I was at 10, and it didn't fit in well. And as a result, I was really severely bullied through um, and ended up graduating from high school at 16 in order to get out. So not only was I driven by this perfection and having this relationship with my parents, I really didn't have childhood friends that could show me a different way. You know, there was a band of four or five of us that were all the misfits that had been ridiculed. I've never spoken to a one of them since I graduated from high school.
0: Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, that, that's, that's a whole other component.
1: Right. So there wasn't a haven anywhere. Um, and again, this is the idea that no one was physically abusing me. No one was doing. But trauma is trauma. Right. And and you feel it in the same way, and and to be able to heal that, I will say that it took maybe three years after mom died that I was able to forgive and release her, and begin to come to the, the understanding that she was she was doing the best she could, right. and and I think once you get to that point, it does help you release the view,
0: right? It, yeah, especially in her case. She was deliberately teaching you these things and doing these things, but probably because of her point of view. It's not like most humans don't, I would say almost all humans don't have the desire to be harmful or evil or anything like that. But if you stick to your viewpoint and don't listen to other people and their reaction or think you know best, oftentimes you're a bit off the track and can cause great harm. And especially, and I don't know if you've heard about Oprah's mother and her story with her mother, but... Um, a little kind of similar besides Oprah had a lot, mom had a lot more problems. She was a single mom and not, not more than your mom, but what I mean is that she also didn't have any other support. Mm -hmm. Um, and it took her until her mom was dying basically to be able to see that her mom had meant well, even though she had all these flaws, but yet (laughs) meaning well and the delivery, you know, it's it's easier for us to maybe emotionally forget, but you still have to live with all the trauma. You're living with all the messages they gave you, um, but it 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 is it does help the process of releasing, like you said. Yes. Which I, I like that word because um, you know, it's it's a it is it's about releasing the control that their viewpoints had on your mind that you didn't even know were there, um, and so and that can be that can well, like you said. It can, it can affect all of your relationships, your viewpoints of self, and, yeah. And, again, a lot of the podcasts we talk about trauma, but uh, trauma is not one thing. And there's other podcasts on this, but uh, it, it is subjective to the nervous system that it occurs to. And, therefore, um, people that try to grade trauma on a scale or sort of quantify it are, are often you know, confused because it is, again, subjective to the nervous system. And whatever that nervous system is experiencing, the results come out in behavior and thoughts and symptoms or or other things, you know, even resilience. Some trauma leads to resilience, some leads to really big deficits in our lives. So um, interesting. I, 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 did you want to touch any more on because I, I really want to get into this, how you reshaped things, which I think is interesting. Because I'm wondering how many of the relationships you had, where you where you put them in the categories, I wonder if how many of these relationships you had were kind of influenced by the fact that you hadn't, like like their mother's influence was still there on you, I wonder, or your parents.
1: Oh, uh, that's a good question. I haven't really been asked in that kind of context. I, I would say that the resh- that the relationships I chose up until I started the reshaping, were relationships that I was in control of. That I was the counselor. I was the, I was the giver, not the taker. I, um, and it, and it, I became a little respected for my wisdom and, you know, all that kind of thing. But what I realized in that is that I had completely eliminated any opportunity for vulnerability. And so that was that was really when I looked at people for that I thought could nurture my soul and that would remain in my circle, um, that was where I started to reveal my the vulnerabilities about myself, and that 's when you see people start to run away because they don't want to they have come to you because you don 't show them that vulnerability, and they 're the vulnerable one, and when they have to when they have to see, have, see that reflection. It's very difficult, and so I think I think the people that I surround myself now with are people that is it, that we're. It's not always an equal give and take, but we are certainly nurturing each other, uh, and that is definitely a different environment than the the mother wound and the you know and those kind of scenarios. And I I sort of knew how to push people like kind of I was, I talk about it as a dartboard. That there's like the people in the close circle. And then so I just started to move people out further out into the dartboard and eventually they kind of fell off and went away, you know, um, to to do the reshaping. But then someone else lovely would come in and it was perfect.
0: I love the, how you use that metaphor because oftentimes, I don't know if it's influenced by social media or just age, but I'll hear from like 20 somethings and they'll have this awakening of that their friends have. Not been as nice to them or whatever as they needed, and they they seem to have to not many all of them, but I, I hear that they need to make a grand statement. They need to like lecture them and like make this massive cut. And I'm, I'm always saying, "What's that for? What's yeah. that about?" Yeah. Because uh, you know that it's like a blaze of going down in a blaze of glory versus like what about just enforcing your boundaries? What about just behaviorally adjusting and letting and you know having some conversations with people obviously that some are necessary and not that we're being passive aggressive and but we're just sort of naturally seeing what occurs instead of the old way of relating perhaps that we were in the old dynamic and what i'm hearing in your dynamic was you were the helper and you were the counselor and you were but it it kept you safe yes. because if you haven't felt safe in your life with your parents completely safe. I mean, emotionally safe, not physically safe. But if you haven't felt emotionally safe, you got to protect that. So it seems like that was a role you took. But and so some people, when you started opening up about what was going on with you, oh, well, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. And other people were like, oh, my goodness, uh, this isn't this isn't how our coffee dates go. Right. I need (laughs) I need my therapy hour here. Right. You know, it's uh, Right.
1: right. Right. Now, there were That's, a couple yeah. of them that were pretty messy. I do have to say oh, okay. that, that there, there were a couple of events and uh-huh. part of that process. But But most of the time—and the other thing to think about for someone in their 60s versus someone in their 20s mm-hmm. is that our life— is very interwoven and it's it's much there are many more people in the fabric than there are when, when you're younger, that you have got longer interwoven relationships. And making a decision to do something very dramatic and have someone fall off a cliff out of your life can have an unintended impact of also taking someone with them that you really valued. And so, so, and that could be a married couple that could be, you know, it could be, or it could just be two people that feel like they have to make a a choice amongst friends based on, you know, uh, situations. And so I think that's gives all the more reason why to be really thoughtful about how you want to shape these relationships because there's the unintended impact of what you're doing. And, um, now sometimes that creates an opportunity. Uh, and if certainly if you believe that there are no coincidences, then there that's, which I do, um, then then there's a reason for all of it, um, but it's I think it's a little more intricate as you get older.
0: That totally makes sense, yeah, because you have such a long history with people at that point. If you've been living in the same area, and I believe how long have you been living in this area? Twenty three years. Twenty three years, so that's a long time, and yes. you have a lot of like yeah interrelation uh, there. So that's a, that's a very good point, yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, I'm curious about. One of the things you mentioned early on, and and maybe this will segue into what you're doing now, but the life of shoulds versus the lives of wants. Mm-hmm. And could you elaborate a little bit on that?
1: Well, it started when I was four years old. Um, I had started taking ballet lessons, and the ballet teacher uh, very... Gently pulled my mother aside and suggested that piano was a better idea for me. (laughs) 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 Unfortunately, I knew that conversation had occurred. (laughs) And as you say, I was only four years old. So, Um, but I took up the piano and I was good at it. And uh, and I played uh, all through college. I played. I accompanied choirs. I I was a piano performance major in college. I ended up graduating and not something else. But but it was um, it was something that when you demand perfection in your life and piano requires a huge amount of practice and perfection and when you perform you believe every single person knows every single note that you've not played properly and it's it is uh it's a very difficult uh thing to when you when you're in this life that I was in to have that be how I was on stage and how I was uh constantly being judged by myself and others and I figured out as, oh, I guess maybe early on in this this whole uh, awakening journey, I never enjoyed playing the piano. I did it for decades because I should do it, not because I wanted to do it. I had a 510 Kawhi Grand piano in my living room for 37 years, and for the last 15, I haven't been playing it. And it was this anchor that was sitting in the middle of my house that was a reminder of my shoulds Mm. and that was the first should that i could you know i could say but then i should get married i should have a career i should and i should do it in the insurance business because um banking and insurance were the only two that were really offering professional careers to women back in the 70s um I realized after I sold my business which was part of my awakening that I did I didn't like the insurance business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I spent 40 years I was good at it. Yeah. I was and I was good at all of these things. And then then that became the well if you were good at it, you should do it. Mm-hmm. The idea of the choice whether you wanted to do it was never presented as an option. And so it just became ingrained in my bones. And so after the retreat and after starting to reshape these friendships, I was like, I think I'm going to sell my business, <laughs> which I did. And then this opportunity to buy a home in France showed up. And did I want to buy a home in France? Yes, I do.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, but even today, as I've, as I've really changed my life to a life of wants, uh, I have to remind myself that um, I've just used the word should or have to. Mm. And I ha- and and I remind myself that I I loop myself back still to this day and I and I say if I can't put want in that sentence instead then I'm not doing that. And and so it's again there's always more work.
0: Right, and and sort of reshaping that and there's been a big movement with authenticity in the last 10 15 years. Brené Brown of course comes to mind and mm. others uh, talking about how do we talk about things that are we're actually thinking about instead of some sort of cultural platitude or what we should talk about, or what we think we should talk about. And I think you're seeing that in your lifetime moving from I should do this. I have to do this to what do I actually want? It's sort of a a self-discovery that can come at any point in someone's life, but it's difficult. It's so difficult. Um, It's easy to judge and, but it's, so difficult to find that space for awakening, especially if you're in a traumatic situation that you don't even identify as trauma, like a lot of children don't even know that they have um, emotional neglect or uh, something else they just have symptoms of anxiety or depression and they go I'm a messed up child right, we see this all the time in our clinic And in our clinic we try to treat the child with the family, we don't want to treat the child independently of the family Uh, Because these symptoms and these patterns had to come from somewhere, unless there's an obvious biological reason, which is, eh, not, I mean, they can be turned on and off, but it's often influenced by the environment. So with that, when you, it sounds like because you worked so hard and, and got to a position where you owned your own business, the freedom of selling that even gave you more time to think about what you wanted. Is that what I'm hearing? That's
1: absolutely correct. Is that every time I would shed a a layer of the shoulds, Right. then something would kind of bubble up. And I've learned to just wait for it because, um, what, what there's an old phrase that um, my brother and I used to say that, that those that try and, uh, control the outcomes, limit them. And, and so, you know, learning to give away that control and learning to just say, whatever's supposed to unfold today is going to unfold. Um, it, for my generation in particular um and i don't think it's just the women but but it feels very selfish mm. and and this idea of doing what you want is um it it's it's counterintuitive to the lives that we were drawn you know that we were expected to to live and so you got to get past that too you got to get past the guilt and the selfishness about saying i'm acting on my own best behalf because that is for the highest good and and everyone else all boats will rise with my actions that I take for my own self-care.
0: Right and as we say in therapy, you know, you can't give from an empty cup and so you have to be able to work on yourself and know what you need before you can help others actually. You can help others without filling your own cup, but it's not coming from the best place. And so I guess this is the interesting part about life and where we start to see how many different organizations and people and cultural models believe there's one or two ways you should live your life instead of a vast variety. It's either this way or that way or whatever versus a rainbow of colors. And so when, when, you, when you say, I had to let go of of what I should or, or had to be doing. And especially in your generation there, there there's cultural expectations for women. There are cultural expectations for men. Um, and there's some sort of, and and of course this is, we're in the United States. There's some, some sort of idea that Americans need to be productive. They need to be the best. They need to uh, sleep when they're dead. They need to work really hard. Um, the new, how are you doing? Instead of saying actually how you're doing, you just say busy. Mm -hmm. Um, we need to always be on. We need to be alert. We need to be the most innovative. And and then there's that question, who, well, who's driving that story? How come that? What is that and why, right? Yeah. I think it probably comes from survival, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, when mm-hmm. the country started, we were, like, leaving a different continent and, mm-hmm. you know, had to survive and, and whatever. But those cultural stories are old. Yeah. They're very old. <laughs> we yeah. we have way too much here. We right. have, You know. Then we don't know how to share it, but that's a whole other topic. But um, it, 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 essentially, what what narrative, grand narrative, do we need to be living under? Do we need to be living under a grand narrative, or or are people, is the point of freedom to have your own narrative, right? If that's what we're talking about in America, we're all about freedom. Right. Is the, is it the freedom to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Okay. What does that mean? Yeah. Is that only one person's version of that or one culture's version of that or is it or do we all get to pursue that, right? And so I hear that coming in your story where in my generation, I'm kind of a little bit in the middle because I was born in the early 80s, but we still had some of that, but you know, definitely was affected, but I and I talked to the people in their 20s and it's so interesting because I hear a split. I hear certain people's parents are very much Um, maybe not to the extent that your mother was, but very much preaching this cultural, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. Maybe not to the extent of like folding and laundry, but this is what women do. This is what men do. This is what, you know, there aren't other groups. (laughs) That's what they say. We won't get into that. But preaching very strongly one way of doing things, which is more of what I would call the status quo. And then I have other people who told me, oh, my parents said, do what you want, be what you want, become what you want. And... And you're going to be great at it. Just pursue something, anything, as long as it makes you happy. And I, I, I was like, oh, my gosh, that's so cool. My parents were a little bit of <laughs> a mixture of that. On one hand, they really wanted me to be happy. On the other hand, they also were like, but, you know, you need yeah. to make money and you need to, you know. So there, there was a mixed message there. Um, but uh, I, I think that that is the challenge of being a person is to individuate from your family. Who am I? Okay, I was born into this family, but who am I? And also individuate from your culture and whatever religion or non-religion you were given and, um, differ and individuate from politics and, and and politics as an identity. And what do I believe about things outside of what influences me? And I think that, that gives people actual freedom. Um, thoughts?
1: Uh, Yeah, I really, I, as you're saying this, I'm, I'm thinking of my own son, uh, who 's thirty seven years old, and what my parenting style was, which was not far from the tree of my mother 's at the end of the day, as I really look at it um, and and his journey, all the things you just articulated are the things that his journey is incorporating as as he is separating from me and se- as, as I have made my changes, and i 've become who I really am is what I would say, um, and true to myself it 's caused some friction in our relationship because he 's now looking at me from some a different space and he 's having to separate. And come to his own conclusions about where he is as well, so uh it is the gift that keeps on giving unfortunately with uh with some of this, and with any luck I've broken the cycle with you know with with he and i um so uh but yeah i I, I think you're spot on
0: thank you um it's just something we love to talk about in therapy because often- ta- i mean there's so many things I could go on about therapy, but oftentimes when people come in with massive amount of symptoms and it's not like a bipolar diagnosis, just lots of symptoms. One of the things I look at, one of the things we look at is environment. Who's around you? Who's surrounding you? What messages are you listening to? What what videos are you watching on TV or the internet? What, what are you consuming? Because that can sh- shape our belief systems. And when is the last time you sat and thought about what you want, who you are, what your goals are, what you would what you would do if you didn't have someone telling you you had to do this job or that, and because of our culture moving from the internet being in a in the dining room in the '90s to um, the internet being on everyone's watch and in their pocket, there's not a lot of silence to contemplate. And to to listen to the inner voice that we all have, but that inner voice can become co-opted by trauma, depression, anxiety, cultural messages of, um, you know, if you and and oftentimes in a time of anxiety, which I think our culture is in a time of anxiety because we're in a time of disruption since the Internet was invented, uh, just like the printing press that disrupted all of Europe for 400 years. Disrupted power structures. It disrupted who could read, who couldn't read, when when you could read, what you could publish. And now the internet means you can publish anything, anytime, anywhere with no fact-checking, no – and who's in charge of fact-checking and and what are facts and what is truth. And so that has disrupted our culture uh, in many ways, good and bad, um, and in between – um, based on whatever perspective you're in. And so I think we're going to continue to be in an age of anxiety due to the the certainty of certain things in the grand narrative. Maybe that where you grew up, there was more of a... Uh, what I mean by a grand narrative is a is a more mainstream story that people could buy into about what you're supposed to do with your life. Yeah. Now... We have millions of different stories, <laughs> and, and every uh, you know, blogger and Instagram account has different ideas of what you might want to do with your life and where you might want to spend your money. So I think we're in that right now. And so having that space is more important than ever to get away from the noise to find out what is it that you actually want, or are you just being influenced by something?
1: Yeah, and in my case, uh, COVID actually was a gift for me. OK, because it that was my forced silence. That was my forced alone time. That was my, you know, and um, and I can see where if you were in not the space I was, where I was looking to welcome that, that you would find that terrifying. That, you know, being, being alone, being, you know, being restricted in your movement in the world and, and losing a lot of that, that connection would be terrifying. For me, it was, it was another opportunity to, to open and, and embrace meditation and embrace journaling and embrace, um, how do I feel? Oh my God. For years, I didn't feel anything, you know, and, and, and to actually identify what physical thing that happened inside of me what was that attached to what was that fear was that just lunch was that you know I mean there that that actually beginning to to get to know myself in that kind of way was actually kind of it was COVID was a gift for that
0: that's yeah that's that's so interesting I I feel like people went through so much during COVID I mean it's so vast the amount of things that came out of there it changed everybody's life in one way or another um Except people that were studying in Antarctica, um, I think they were the only ones that weren't affected. There was like seven <laughs> people in Antarctica that didn't know it had happened, uh, but then they came back and they, they their lives probably have subsequently changed. But but uh, we all changed. And there was the stages of grief. For some people, they were like, "Oh my gosh, I am so excited to learn about myself, to meditate." Like you, uh, there were other people that said, "Oh my god, I'm going to write my book. I'm going to uh, work on music." Uh, I've heard so many of that. And other people, I just heard, "Now I'm paralyzed. I'm so depressed." I can't move. I can't do anything, and I'm glad there's grocery delivery now. That's cool. But you know, they, there wasn't many bright sides, you know, to it. So it's interesting how you know everything can be a little bit. They they say in business, right? Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. Mm-hmm. So in, in life, events can be opportunities or threats. Some of them, obviously, we don't get to decide. Like if a bear is chasing me, I would say that's more of a threat than an opportunity to run right i can run on my own i don't need a bear to chase me but you just but,
1: have to be faster than the last guy right
0: exactly <laughs> but there are but there are events that will shape us and if we're open to it and 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 can allow a new challenge um, like you said being alone with yourself and feeling your emotions i think it's a challenge for uh, is is a countercultural challenge in america i think because nowadays i don't know what it what, it was different the reasons people were maybe not emotional or Open to their emotions in your generation, but in my generation, I feel like people aren't open to their generations because they're too busy. Mm-hmm. They're just—they're addicted to work. Um, uh, they, you know, we've got these apps that make our lives easier, but then you spend all this time—you spend all this time in your app. Like yeah. uh, I always tell people, a real way to find out what's going on in your life if you're confused is um, look at your your smartphone has a tracker of how much time you've been on screen and on, on which app, and especially Apple has that, and people really. It's like a jarring experience because you're like, I don't have any time for anything. But then you look and you're like, oh, my gosh, I've been looking at my phone, you know.
1: Yeah. I, uh, part of my awakening was uh, how much time I was spending playing Candy Crush. So, <laughs> so, so, right. so, yep, I learned I learned a few things about that yeah. as well. <laughs> and in moderation, Candy Crush can be,
0: like anything in moderation, can be a wonderful exactly. distraction and a lot of fun. And so especially on those plane rides to Europe. So I want exactly. to know a little bit about, you know, you're now uh, you are living part time in France. Yes. And I, I really am ex- interested to know about this. Uh, and, and and they were coming back here to America, uh, the United States. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that and how that's shaped you? What's going on with that?
1: Yeah, as you were talking about, you know, the different worldviews and, you know, how Americans got to be how they are today and, and, and this driven society that we are. Um, It's such a wonderful juxtaposition in Europe because I'm in the French countryside. I mean, I'm in a little hamlet of maybe 60 houses that are all over 200 years old that are connected. And the simplicity of daily life there is remarkable as compared to here. Um, Just... Just getting through the day for what you're going to do for breakfast, when you're going to water the plants, what are you going to, it's, it's all very, you know, what market sells the best cheese on Wednesdays, what market has the best chickens on Saturday, what's, uh, you know, it just, it's all very deliberate in a very simple way. And it's not driven by time, it's not driven by, um. It, it's not driven by outcomes, it's, you know, the outcome is you end up with a fabulous meal or the outcome is that look at that rose bush how beautifully it's doing this year. Right. So it's not about having some sort of a of a of a progress, you know, that you have to you're not proving to someone else that how successful you are based upon this set of values that, you know, that we've artificially overlaid, you know, in our own in our own society. And as a result, people, you know, they they work fewer hours. Um things are still closed from noon to two every day. And if you're at the hardware store and you're ready to check out at 12 o'clock, they're going to look at you and say, park your cart and come back at two o'clock, you know? So, so, but but it creates this expectation that, you know, I'm not expected to be productive all day long. I, If I want to sit and have a cup of tea at, you know, at two o'clock in the afternoon for an hour and just stare at the vineyard, I can do that, <laughs> you know? And, and And so, and then when I come back now, I'm so struck by how easy it is to live here, Mm -hmm. you know, and obviously I live in a very blessed environment and and I'm not I'm not struggling, you know, for for day to day. But it's it's almost embarrassing how abundant we are Mm -hmm. and and how how easy and accessible everything is and and that's even coming from a, a relatively wealthy country you know french france is a is a wealthy country as well so um i think actually france is beginning to feel more like home because it matches it matches where i am now mm. more fully than where uh, where i live in the united states
0: yeah that's that is an interesting uh learning experience because yeah when, i i've never lived abroad But I've been abroad for five, six months at a time uh, before to Europe uh, when I was in university and a couple other times. But uh, I did, the pace of life was very different. And um, people who I I have several friends who are expats, uh, one in France, one in uh, the UK, no, a couple in the UK uh, and other places. And they tell me that. They felt they feel like the juxtaposition between here and there is that the focus over in most European countries, the the ones they're living in, is on quality of life as the and so they'll pay more taxes. They're okay with that. They'll they'll uh, pay into, you know, what is good for everyone, a little bit more utilitarian approach than um, what's good for this special interest group in this city, in this state, in this political Climate, which is more in the U.S., it's like we have different, we have competing ideas about what is good, and I don't know if that's because we're so large or what. Um, probably because we're also a younger country, we haven't fully, we're not really sure what what is quality of life, uh, um, and and they like they well they're expats that so they live there now and 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 full time, and um, and they don't miss it. You know, they yeah. their their families miss them, yeah. um, but you know, I think everyone there's something that. There's something to be learned from that, and there's something I think the United States could could learn from what you're experiencing there. But you're right. It it is very convenient here. Yes. I mean, um, we have stores right down the street here that are open 24 hours a day. They have every single possible thing I could ever need unless I'm trying to make some special gourmet meal. Mm -hmm. They have everything uh, for hardware uh, to clothing to food to alcohol to whatever it is yep. and it's right there and um not only that if i don't have a car and i'm willing to pay a few extra dollars i can have it delivered to my door yep um you know it's it's an interesting uh difference yes. in the in the world so yes. um i guess what i would say is uh where do you feel like your life is going now? You're still growing and learning.
1: Yeah. I, you know, that's a question I don't answer anymore because okay. <laughs> if anybody, because five years ago, I would, if anyone would have told me that I would have, you know, so, sold my business, written a book, bought a home in France and you fill in the blank for, you know, other things I'd have said, oh, that's not going to happen. And, and so I don't want to limit the opportunities.
0: I like that. Okay. <laughs> So basically what I'm hearing is I'm open to what might occur. Yes. Okay. Yes. That's good. And I do think, um, you know, it's interesting that you're bringing this up from your learning, but um, I've also heard a l- there's a lot of meditation teachers. I don't know if you listen to any of them, but mm-hmm. like Ram Dass and Jack Kornfield and uh, Thich Nhat Hanh and uh, Pema Chodron, um, and they've all taught in their careers many different things. But some of the some of the gist of it is... Trying to reorient your brain away from a calendar that we made up, yes, as humans to orient ourselves and organize ourselves, but don't let that calendar become how you think. Right. You don't. There is no Friday. There is no Saturday. There is more time. Every, every moment in time that you are experiencing right now is the only moment you can experience. Everything else is a memory or an anticipation. Correct. And and reorienting yourself to a to a rhythm. It's very difficult. And, and, and especially, you know, obviously we have to have calendars to be able, if you have a job or something, you have to know right. where you've got to be and when, but not letting that dominate your your thoughts, using it as a reference point yeah. instead. And what I'm hearing in France is that there's much more of a rhythm, like chicken on Sundays and cheese on Wednesdays and, 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 and sort of things where here in the U.S., it's it, I almost feel like it's hard. To, you have to develop your own rhythm because the community isn't developing a rhythm for you.
1: That's that's a great point. I was just thinking that that's whole idea of rhythm and time when I think about it in France versus here is, you know, here we're very like, oh, we'll get together at three o'clock or we'll you know, I'll see you to do this. And quite often there it'll be like someone will say, well, you know, I don't know what's going to happen between now and then. So we won't necessarily say, you know, so we'll it'll be sometime today, but let's, let's not, let's not get too tied down to when that's actually going to be. And I'm really learning to, to let go of that, that rigidity. And I'm a Virgo. So, I mean, it's, oh. you know, I've oh, got, I know about Virgos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... I'm married to one. <laughs> and uh, one of the best, uh, one of the best descriptions I've heard of, of uh, something that I aspire to is uh, an enlightened Virgo mm. is is uh, the monk that is in the church sweeping the corners clean in order to create more space for others to grow. Ooh. And I love that because Virgos still need to be like sweeping and cleaning up and doing those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But when you're able to do it for a higher purpose, it's really very fulfilling.
0: That's wonderful. So and that's another thing that is probably tied into the book is having Finding meaning and purpose in your life. And you have 38 exercises. Yes. And um I am actually excited to read your book. I had not had it until I finally met you today. But um can you talk a little bit about purpose for you? And I know that can change, but.
1: Yeah, I think. For me, purpose has become, uh, you know, I've always been a leader. I've always had that sort of role, but I grew up from a corporate perspective. Um, so it's the command and control leadership, the top-down leadership, the create the structure and put people in the holes and demand the outcomes leadership. So very mm-hmm. old, traditional command and control, like I said, leadership. And I think that the way my purpose has is evolving is that my leadership style is has gone f- from top to bottom to say that I'm creating a cradle, a cradle, or a um, a bottoms up sort of leadership style that allows other women to be supported and grow w- with me holding them up rather than me forcing you know forcing down into them and that that by doing so you offer this expansion and and so that's that is a practice for me because I still some, that old control piece always wants to come, you know, creeping back in again. But I do find if I if I just let it go and I just really experience where I am with women when when we're you know talking through some of this stuff together, that um, that that's my purpose. Is that if I've said since the moment I published this book, you know, if one woman benefits from this, then that's my purpose.
0: That's wonderful. And I was actually curious, are these informal conversations or are you, do you do mentoring or something like
1: that? Uh, Workshops, Um, uh, small workshops, you know, maybe four to 10 women. Um, and, and they're one day, you know, it's really, uh, geared to getting people to, um, to just start their template, just start their, what, what are the things that, you know, as you really, you know, what do you feel like today and how do you want to feel? You know, and then what's standing in the way of that feeling today, you know, and and it's really kind of making lists. I mean, some of it's just like and then, you know, what what can you take away? what can you take out or what can you pull in? You know, what's, what's the hour that you can switch around? I mean, really starting with small bites with that, because I mean, if you really look at where I feel right now and what I want to feel like, and you try and take that in all at once, mm-hmm. that is just overwhelming. Right? right. But if, if you just kind of say by the, you know, at the end of four or six hours, you know, of, of, working together, what's the one thing I can walk away from with here that I could just make one small change and then do like a follow up you know, every week for, you know, for a bit to say, how'd that feel, you know? Mm -hmm. And then because you have to, it's reinforcing success, just like anything, you know, because there's a lot of fear with making the changes of what you might lose. And it's hard for people. It's hard for people to understand how wonderful it can be.
0: Right. There's always the trade-off. So if I want to improve something or change something in my life, I do have to also let go of something because you don't have room for everything. Right. And I think We've been in a pattern so long, and humans, even though everything is changing, we like to not change things. We lo- we want our environment to stay the same, even if it's terrible sometimes, because the unknown is more terrifying than what is the familiar.
1: Yeah, and that's where uh, with the, the workshop uh, concept with being a small number of people, they they can become vulnerable with each other pretty quickly, and. um and then they find their commonality pretty quickly and it helps them reinforce the fact that it's that, that they aren't alone. I've talked, this is a theme of mine is that, you know, we that we're not alone. There's many, many of us going through this journey and the more of us that find each other and help each other and support each other, be it in, you know, one-on-one conversation with a friend or a workshop with me or, you know, whatever it is, um, that's where the growing comes. That's where the, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the opportunity to, to be triumphant in your life is.
0: Very good. And um, can people find out about these workshops on your website? Yeah. Okay, excellent. I'll be putting that in the show notes as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the, I, I really appreciate you giving uh, your time to us here at The Intentional Clinician and um, really explaining your personal journey on, on a lot of these concepts that we talk about from psychology and philosophy, but you're, you're living it and uh, really working to embody it. And I think that shows through in the interview, but also I'm sure in the book and in the workshops as well. So I think that's great um, how you're finding your own fulfillment while also inspiring others and having more of a balance versus maybe the way things were before
1: i sure hope so (laughs) (laughs) but thank you so much for today and giving me the opportunity to talk about it
0: yeah absolutely it's my pleasure and uh thanks for coming on and uh we'll talk to you soon thanks paul There you have it. This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast. If you are enjoying the show, please share it with people you know. I'd surely appreciate it. Or give us a rating on iTunes. If you are looking for an EMDR, International Association Consultant, I am now a consultant, and I can help you get the 20 hours needed to become Emdrea certified. I am running groups online and in person And you can check out details more at CounselingSupervisorGR.com or HealthForLifeGR.com and send me a message. If you are wanting to get trained in EMDR therapy, there will be a link in the show notes for EMDR training solutions. I know them quite well, and you can use the code INTENTIONAL to get $100 off your first training at checkout. If you are in need of counseling, do not hesitate to make an appointment with a local counselor in your area. You can also make an appointment with the excellent clinicians in the Grand Rapids area at Health for Life Counseling and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids by visiting www.healthforlifegr.com. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krause and his guest. And while these are based upon literature they have read and their experience in life and the fields that they worked in, this should not be viewed as the definitive opinion on any subject listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment or any type of consulting. If you are in a crisis, please dial 911 right now or the National Suicide Prevention Line at 1-800-273-8255. Are you a young person of color feeling down, stressed out, or overwhelmed? Text Steve, that's S-T-E-V-E, to 741741 and a live, trained crisis counselor will respond. Did you know you could support your local bookstore by shopping at bookshop.org? You can order online from the comfort of your own home and the proceeds of bookshop.org help support local bookstores that are made out of brick and mortar near you. If you are a therapist and you are not a member of your counseling association in your state or one of the national counseling associations, I would implore you to join. These organizations help lobby... So that you, the therapist, can have your services remain available to the public by using both private and public insurance and helping increase education to the public, promoting best practices, and helping with licensure issues. The Michigan Mental Health Counselors Association is a great organization, as well as the Arizona Counselors Association. I am a member of both of those, and I encourage you to get involved. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening and I hope you have a safe and peaceful week